Like it or not like it, but the Democrats walked away from me. Bernie Kratz fighting Clintonites and the cultural left fighting the economic left. The Democratic Party's problem right now is that it's too small. They have a messaging challenge. They have a generational challenge in the Democratic Party. They're blowing up the party. You'd have to say the leadership has not been clever enough. We were too cautious. We were too namby-pamby. And I think the losers are Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. You know, last week we talked about the Republican Party in disarray. This week we turn to the Democrats. You know, they've lost control of all branches of the federal government. West Virginia Governor Jim Justice switching parties to the Republicans just last week, meaning Democrats now hold a record low number of governorships. The party is trying to right their ship. They have a new, more populous economic plan called a better deal. But it hasn't stopped the infighting between the moderates and those further to the left. The Democrats have been battling each other under various names. I mean, for years, Democrats wouldn't even use the word liberal. Let's get re word replacement, call ourselves progressives, because uh, we're just not sure what words work. And then, of course, during the 90s, the Clintons were triangulating, finding third ways, uh, because, well, Walter Mondale got slaughtered, and the whole powerful FDR to Ronald Reagan coalition seemed to be the last place Democrats wanted to be, but maybe not. Because now we have, of course, in this last presidential election season, Bernie Sanders basically singing the old Democratic song. What government should do for you to create a level playing field. What you are entitled to by virtue of your citizenship as an American. And boy, that had appeal. And maybe appeal that surprisingly did not stretch to some of those Trump voters. But right now, people are saying, a lot of those folks should be in our tent. And if we were just true to our oath, they would be and will be in 2020. The war is raging inside of the Democratic Party. Heather, give us some blissful historical context here. This kind of battle. Uh, entire realigning. What kind of movement do you see right now on the Democratic side? Yeah, it's funny. Right now, we tend to look at the Republicans. But in fact, the Democrats are in as much trouble as the Republicans are in many ways. As you note, they don't have control of many uh, governorships. They don't have much of a foothold in the federal government right now. And what I see right now and what I thought was fascinating about both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump was what both of them brought to the table was a narrative about what it meant to be an American. And the Democrats right now are having to fight the, the fight within their own party between the old cultural and to some degree social alliances that they started paying attention to in the late 1960s and this younger emphasis on, you know, why do we care? Why do we care about the Democratic Party? Why do we care about the Republican Party? What does it mean to be a Democrat? What does it mean to be a Republican? And the Democrats need to put a lot of skin in that game soon. You know, let's get to our guest, Jonathan Chait, a political writer for New York Magazine. You've read his stuff. His book on the Obama presidency is Audacity, how Barack Obama defied his critics and created a legacy that will prevail. Jonathan Chait, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So, Jonathan, you've written that the fight for the heart of the Democratic Party is between the liberals 
and this rising illiberal left. Define what you mean by that. How does the Democratic Party bridge this seemingly widening and contentious gap? Liberalism is a political philosophy that's that's very very old. That's that's based on human on human individual rights, on the rights of every person to have certain equal political rights. And what a lot of these illiberal approaches to social issues do is to um, frame all questions entirely in terms of, of group identity, and a, and a person's only political rights can be expressed solely in terms of which group they they belong to and whether they're a member of the oppressed or the oppressor class, um, which is what produces all these illiberal policies, um, which don't really respect individual rights. This left, which has a social dimension and has an economic dimension, is a very, very tiny portion of the party. Um, I think it has disproportionate voice through social media and through academia. This is the um, ill this is the illiberal left, which has yeah. certain Tea Party characteristics. They're very noisy, though they're still small. Yeah, and you and, and and in some ways it's divided against itself because the the, the far left wing um, sort of inside and, and sometimes outside the Democratic Party, you have a social issues wing and you have an economic wing, and then oftentimes they're at each other's throats. I don't think that that's a majority or anything close to majority of the Democratic Party. So I actually think, uh, look, partisan politics is a zero-sum game. So unless you think that one or both of the parties is going to collapse and give way to a different party, which I don't think is happening anytime soon, um, I don't think it's really possible for both parties to be in total disarray. The Republicans are in control of government, um, and with a dysfunctional government, a dysfunctional partnership, uh, a legislative program that's deeply unpopular and 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 a, and a totally incompetent president, um, and I think this is going to help the Democrats regardless of what they do. Well, it seems to me, though, that we have two major issues to look at with the Democratic Party, and you're dancing around one central one that is not taking into consideration the other one, and that is that within the Democratic Party as it exists today— there is the the center, if you will, the moderate Democrats, sometimes they call themselves liberals, and the more radical ones who might have uh, cultural issues or economic issues or any number of things. And the, the, the thing that I think is fascinating about that war is that there is another major issue for the Democrats, and that is that the system as it is currently operating is so significantly stacked against them. So that there's a problem of gerrymandering. There's a problem of voter suppression. There's a problem of the fact that they have a very shallow bench right now in, the, in states and to some degree in the federal government, although there are people stepping up to the plate there. So there there is this extraordinary disjunction in our larger system that privileges Republicans over Democrats. And that's something that the party must grapple with before it really worries about policies. So how do you manage somehow to reorganize the larger system and or to reorganize the Democratic Party so that it makes the government represent American people more accurately than it currently does? Because right now we're at a disjunction in both parties between the parties and the government that seems to me to be simply unsustainable. I think that's a great point, and you've you've made a lot of really smart points packed into a short amount of time, and it's hard to kind of get to all of them. Um, but so I would say the problem with the system is the system is undemocratic in a way that benefits the Republican Party. The, the House 
is gerrymandered and the Senate gives disproportionate representation to Republican states. So that's, you know, that that's a huge problem for Democrats. And I think it means that they need to win a, a majority. They can't just have 50 percent point one and, and govern the country. They can't. The Republicans can can really govern the country with 47 or 48 percent because of these advantages. Democrats need a strong majority, which I think gets to your second point which is the division between the center and the left. And I think th this means the Democrats really need a plan for winning red areas, red states, um, centrist places, um, which, which, which means they can't, they can't succumb to the temptations of, of ideological purity because the system is stacked against them and they need to find a way to win um, some pretty hostile terrain. Uh, you know, the question is, can the Democrats or will the Democrats rise to what is clearly the opportunity of Donald Trump's arrival to essentially take a page from that playbook of the Republicans to get the job done on their own behalf? Because, frankly, the Republicans, you know, the Republicans have been moving forcefully and the yield mm -hmm. of that forceful action is what we're seeing now in state houses and governorships and, frankly, even in the federal government that the Democrats have never managed, John, in our lifetime. Well, I think you're totally right in describing the unity of the Republicans in opposition to Obama and the incredible discipline they mustered to withhold any Republican support for any aspects of Obama's agenda throughout his presidency. But in power, it's been a very different story. Um, they're they're at each other's throats all the time. I mean, just just recently you had um, Donald Trump blaming Mitch McConnell for the failure of Obamacare in public. Yeah. Uh, sorry, of Obamacare repeal. Um, so I think you know, in power, uh, they're they're starting to crack up a bit. Um, but but you know, I think if you really look historically, and of course Heather's the historian, but. The Democratic Party has had these divisions since the New Deal. You had people on the left angry with the direction of the mainstream liberals who tended to have control of, of the party. Um, in 1948, Henry Wallace broke off and formed a splinter party opposed Harry Truman. Um, you had significant opposition in 1968. Ralph Nader opposed the Democrats and ran a left-wing splinter party in, in 2000. Jill Stein in 2016. A lot of these are the same constituents, the same themes, the same ideas. Um, and I think there's you know a pretty consistent 2%, maybe 2.5% of the public that's pretty far left, suspicious of mainstream liberalism, and very hard to get on board with your party, uh, especially when you're already in power and having to compromise. And I think the Democrats just have to face up to the fact that they're not going to have those people, and probably any concessions they make to keep those people will cost them more votes in the center than they win on the left. Uh, John, you've been uh, uh, covering President Obama. You had a terrific exit interview with him last year for New York Magazine, where he talked about his legacy. I want to play you a clip from Congressman Keith Ellison, who's the deputy chairman of the Democratic National Committee, and he said this in April. Barack Obama could have been a better party leader. And I think that the fact that he um, wasn't uh, has put his legacy in jeopardy. Uh, given that we did not, uh, we lost a lot of state house seats, governorships, secretaries of states, his true legacy is in danger. And I think that he can't say that it wasn't, he wasn't part of those losses. I mean, who else? Should President Obama have done more for the party? Well, I, I have to take issue with the premise of what Ellison said. I saw um, a 
study or a measure of what happens to parties in power at the presidential level down ballot. And historically, pres- parties that have long, you know, one or two terms, especially two terms in power, lose a lot of, of seats down ballot. That's just the natural thermodynamic force in politics. Those numbers don't suggest to me that Obama did anything different than other previous presidents did um, in terms of his party brand. It's, that's just kind of what happens. This actually goes back to the point of the difference between the the moderate liberal left center, if you will, and the more extreme people on the left, it seems to me, because I think you could make a very good argument that Obama looked very good during his presidency and even better now for upholding the rule of law, for being very careful, for being moderate, for val- for valuing empiricism, for valuing compromise, for all those things that we actually value in America. He was just facing a Congress that was the most most obstructionist since the the Democrats with Abraham Lincoln and possibly uh, the the Congress under Harry Truman, who, that he called the do-nothing Congress because it wouldn't do anything he wanted it to do. Right. But there is an argument to be made, I think, and I'm not the first to make it, that the far left, the fringe left, the radical left, mm-hmm. if you will, um, yep. has a role to play in American society by pushing that moderate left further left, but even more so by capturing the... American cultural imagination, if you will, through music, through art, through uh, concepts of what equality and justice could look like. And that on that front that Obama may have failed uh, because he did not present that kind of sort of a cultural new vision, but he left that up to other people and really gave us the model of a liberal left center president. I do think that Obama actually left an imprint on American culture during his time, and it's a lasting one. Um, I think race is the biggest single aspect of it, but not the only one. Um, The way Obama brought the African-American struggle for freedom, not only into the American story, but made it the heart of the American story and started telling a version of American history in which that struggle was the central metaphor for America itself. Um, I think that really was a powerful cultural message that he that he managed to send through his own actions, his own speeches. Um, I think the the power of that I think is going to be quite lasting. You know, I think you're right about the long standing legacy of the first African American president. He was very very mindful of that, and he was always mindful of legacy, how he will be remembered. I think one of his areas that might be one of fault that he may acknowledge is that sometimes he was not looking at the present tense, the day-to-day, with quite enough um, uh, creative energy. You know, he was doing a lot of come together instead of we won, I've got the chits, and I'm going to basically push through what has long been overdue in terms of structural change in America. Had he done more than that, more than he did even, uh, to get some of that structural change, we might not have some of the deep divisions and the deep structural uh, dilemmas especially in terms of inequality that we're now facing. I mean, that's part of what I think Obama may say now. Well, this does raise the question of what it means to be a Democrat and what it means to be a Democrat in the 21st century, especially now in this moment that I really see as a major realignment of the entire American political system. And when we were thinking about what that actually might mean, this is what I thought of. And this was Franklin, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt giving a speech in 1936, a few days before he was reelected to his second term as president. Here's a clip of him. We had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, 
war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. So whenever I think of the Democratic Party, I think of this speech by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it's a it's an important speech for him. It is more articulate on the issue of rich and poor in America than he normally was. What we've got now is a system, as he says here, of government by organized money, which is just as dangerous as a government by organized mob. That is, I'm not part of the mob. I'm simply here saying that we have a rich mob that's running the country right now, and they're destroying it, and they've thrown us into this extraordinary depression. And what the American government has to do is it has to get involved in the economy and level the playing field. It's got to provide a basic social safety net. It's got to protect workers. It's got to make sure that a few wealthy men don't walk away with everything. And with that, he and the Democratic Congress create the the New Deal, which is the system of government, an activist government that does regulate business and protect a basic social safety net and try to create infrastructure to create opportunity for every American. And that idea, that idea that this New Deal state, as it was known, is the way to maintain a stable uh, society that offers a quality of opportunity for all Americans is really articulated in this moment by FDR. We don't want a government of organized money any more than we want an organ- a government of organized mob on the, on the far left. And this is FDR taking liberalism, giving it a modern day face, taking it straight down the middle of the road. As soon as you said a Roosevelt speech, I knew which speech you were going to quote because that speech (laughs) is the speech that's quoted all the time when this kind of argument is made. And there's a reason why that speech is the one. It's because it's the only one he made, or or certainly the only famous one, and and, and not at all characteristic of his general public discourse, which— which was much more conciliatory for the vast majority of his presidency. You're describing, and I'm, I hesitate to lecture a historian who surely knows this better than I do, but you know, you're you're describing one small, brief political period in his presidency that was mostly very different. Right, but, right. Well, well, but that being said, um, one of the things that he did was he talked a lot about saving capitalism from itself, and and one of the things that fascinates me about the Democrats is they come from a tradition beginning way back in the 1830s of seeing the world, if you will, as a limited pie in which it's imperative that the government not come down on the side of the very wealthy, that the government has to keep its finger on the scale for the little guy, for regular Americans, so that everybody has an equal shot. And that's the, that is the narrative that it seems to me is begging to happen from not from a Bernie Sanders or somebody from the outside, but rather from somebody who's a moderate Obama-type centrist liberal who says, listen, look at the way the economy is. We're screwing over 99% of Americans. This is not what America stands for. Many of those people ended up voting for Donald Trump. Like I interviewed Elizabeth Warren, 
And I asked her point blank, when it comes to Wall Street, will you repeat Roosevelt's line? Will you welcome their hate? And she said, you bet I welcome their hate. Now, there it is. Warren is trying to catch the fire, the lightning of Roosevelt. And many folks on the left are saying, yeah, now it might not have been the time with Barack Obama. Let's move past Obama. Let's move to present tense. Is now the time in which that narrative has come due? I mean, their versions of that theme have been the central theme of democratic rhetoric for 30 years. Oh, God, the um, Clintons would disagree with that, and they ran the country all through Bill the 90s. Clinton ran, ran, Bill Clinton ran on his tax cut for the, for the, for the rich, and, and he implemented it against fierce, um, bitter opposition from Republicans. Tax, tax rise. Would destroy tax, the economy. tax rise. The tax, tax increase yeah, on right. the rich. The, he raised the top tax Right, 36, and, 36 and defending, 39, 3%. 3%. And, and, and fighting against the, de- the Republican plans to cut taxes for the rich and to, and to deregulate business have been the central theme. It was of Al Gore and John Kerry and Obama and Hillary Clinton too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just don't... I'm with you. I'm with you. Look, look let's, let's, let's hear a little from our friend Wild Bill here. Because Clinton also, as you know, Jonathan, uh, also embraced third-way ideas. There's, a, there's the sister soldier moment here uh, when he's a candidate, 1992, where he denounces the hip-hop artist uh, at Reverend Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. People saw it as Clinton distancing himself from these more extreme elements of the Democratic coalition, which in a way now are having their day. Let's listen just a little bit here. I defend her right to express herself through music, but her comments before and after Los Angeles were filled with the kind of hatred that you do not honor today and tonight. Just listen to this, what she said. She told the Washington Post about a month ago, and I quote, If black people kill black people every day, why not have a week and kill white people? So you're a gang member and you'd normally kill somebody? Why not kill a white person? If there are any good white people, I haven't met them. Where are they? Right here in this room. That's where they are. I know she is a young person, but she has a big influence on a lot of people. And when people say that, if you took the words white and black and you reversed them, you might think David Duke was giving that speech. Jonathan, the David Dukes of the world, the alt-right, is now cheering this president. You know, is this a moment for the Democrats? And many of them are saying that on the far left, to step up angrily and saying, I'm going to fight fire with fire here. I'm going to bring fire to the what some say is the largely uh, mercantile and materialist, you know, distribution of goods, economic, technocratic views of the Democratic Party. Well, I have a soft spot for technocracy. And the, the thing is about, about technocracy is it works. And I think um, not to beat the theme to death, but I think Obama's presidency the argument I make is that its policies are enduring because they work. There's a reason why Repu- Republicans were able to posture against Obamacare, but were not able to replace. Um, you know, there's there's a reason why Dodd Frank is actually had such a strong effect on reshaping Wall Street and, and taking so much risk out of the system. And and there and there's a reason why the, the climate policies have 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 had the the impact they, they've had. So, so well designed technocratic policies are actually work. So you're really setting yourself into a trap by making populist promises that sound really good but can't be followed up. And that's what Donald Trump did. He made everything he said was super popular, right? I'm gonna 
cut everybody's taxes and I'm going to give everybody wonderful healthcare coverage. It's going to be so fast. I'm going to build a huge wall and all these things sound great, but you can't really do them. Okay, Jonathan, Heather, hold your thoughts. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So I have a question if you go back, though, to the the sister soldier statement here and some of the stuff we're hearing from the, the radical left now that is getting such headlines and that you've talked about their disproportionate power. What do you think about that? As you said, what did you say, the number you said, like only about 2 percent of Americans ever ever support that kind of radicalism, and yet they are outsized and in importance? Should the Democrats simply ignore them? Yes. In a yes, word. the Democrats should should do their best to ignore them. So, what I think the Democratic Party needs to do is be the party of social equality and 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 progressivism, um, and inclusion for different groups without succumbing to that that kind of um, radical left wing frame. What represents the centrist Democrat? If third way Clintonian ideas does not is is what you just said that definition of the centrist Democrat at this moment. Well, I think that kind of inclusive social liberalism has a real majority position in the United States. It didn't when Bill Clinton ran. The, the, the country had been moving to the right on social issues since the mid-1960s, starting with the 1966 backlash the Democrats faced um, when their party was seen as representing minorities at the expense of white people. And, the, and, and liberals were really on the defensive. And, and that's what led Clinton to really try to signal that his party wasn't just going to represent minorities, but to, but to really send a message to white America. Um, for better or for worse, that's what he had to do, and that's what he did uh, in order to win. And he kept his African-American base um, with him when he made those moves. But I think the current environment is different. I think it's more liberal. It's not radical, but um, historically, populists have a lot of success at winning one election. I mean, this is sort of an international comparison. You can win one election by by promising, hey, I'm going to give everybody jobs, everybody money, everybody food, or, or whatever it is you don't have now, I'll give it to you without any cost, without any trade-off. Um, they have a lot of trouble sustaining their programs when they're in power. And that's when they usually turn authoritarian in, because they can't hold on to public support. So unless unless they've cooked the system, which is what we've got right now. Yep. And it strikes me that it, it is a real mistake to look at 2018 and think the Democrats are going to, to clean up because of gerrymandering, because of voter suppression, because of the weird situation in the Senate. Although 30 and years it, of hard work by Republicans. Uh, is yes. What it, and, what quite, it means. and quite deliberate. But that being said, the word of the, the present, I think, is fair. Our government does not represent the people, what the people want. And that fairness has to be restored to the system as well as within the parties. Well, I absolutely agree that you've identified the major impediment the Democratic Party faces. What I don't think is that the impediment is so large that it is going to prevent them from getting um, back power, back control of the House, certainly in 2018. What is indisputable is that the opportunity now presented to the Democratic Party is there and it's real. The question is, will they seize it? Well, a lot of the the Republicans, Trump voters I know, um, have said to me, the Democrats need to give me a reason to vote for them. I want a reason. Give me a reason and I will vote for them, which I think is very interesting. One of the things that we don't talk about in American politics that always strikes me as fascinating in a moment like this is the age demographic. If you look 
uh, in the last election, the leadership everywhere was old. It was old and it was white. And that demographic does no longer reflect America. And and when this happens, when you get a, a group of politicians and political systems that are quite old, what it does is it opens up the way down below for younger people to step in and modify parties from within. Uh, whenever you get this sort of top-heavy, older party system, you get younger people stepping up. And that's what I'm watching. And that may be exactly the demographic dynamic, the generational dynamic that is flowing into Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the rest. Those folks weren't around. They weren't adults when Bill Clinton was doing his third way. They weren't there when Walter Mondale got slaughtered doing straight FDR back with Reagan. They say, well, why not? Those policies seem good. I want health care covered. I want free college. I mean, what could be wrong with that? Fine. Tax the wealthy. They've had a terrific run for three decades. It's their time. That's what you hear from a lot of young people. Generational change is something we often overlook politically. It shapes everything. It is often destiny. That's something we're going to look for in the future. Absolutely. Jonathan Chait, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our talk. Love your insights. Heather, uh, that was fun. As always, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. Uh, For both of us here on Freak Out and Carry On, thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Our intern is Chris Yulian. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.